1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. If you are visiting, we're glad you're here. Uh, You've caught us in the midst of a series on 1 John, which was written to Christians who had endured some conflict with some leaders who started to teach heresy and then walked away to do their own thing. And if you think about how that kind of conflict goes, those heretics would have tried to make the genuine believers think they didn't really know God unless they embraced this new teaching. And so it's been said that the Apostle John wrote his gospel so that we can know that Jesus is the Son of God. And he wrote this first letter so that we may know that we know. And he gives many assurances, different assurances. He says, by this we know, by this we know. And the main assurance he offers us today, we saw it right out of the gate in verses 7 and 8, is that loving each other is evidence that we have a real relationship with God because God is love. Uh, love is, is no doubt the most popular attribute of God. This is God is love, probably the most well-known statement about God. We live in, in a, a post-Christian culture that thinks if there is a God, if God is anything, he's love. But they don't understand love. And so they import false notions and, and draw wrong conclusions about the God of love. Even in the church, just like John was contending with bad teachings in the church, we need to be careful today to guard against bad teachings about God is love, which have been circulating for decades. My heart's desire for everyone here is to be helped by this text and this sermon in in three ways. To understand God's love more accurately, 
to respond more affectionately and be assured more firmly than ever before. That's no small goal, but God is able, so let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for you, for being who you are for us. We need you to do what only you can do and come minister to us by your spirit, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. God is love, verse eight. And again for emphasis in verse 16, God is love. God is uncaused, eternal, self-sufficient, infinitely perfect, unchanging, because it can't get any better, maximally alive, absolutely loving. But if God has never changed, then how is it true eternally that God is love? How could God be loving before there was anything but God, before there was any creature to love? The answer is in verses 9 and 13. God is a father loving his son by his spirit. For all eternity, God is a father in relationship with his uniquely begotten son, timelessly, changelessly begotten. God the Father exists in such a way that his image stands forth as a second person, his son, who shares the same divine nature, like a divine word from a divine mind, like like a divine light radiating from light but undivided, without separation, sharing the same divine nature. And the Hebrew and Greek words for spirit are the same words for breath because the spirit proceeds like breath but without separation. So God has never been alone in an absolute sense. God has never been lonely for all eternity. The father was loving the son and the spirit and the son loving the father and spirit and the spirit loving the father and son in this raging joy fest of love. And so Michael Reeves is right in his delightful book, Delighting in the Trinity. The Trinity is not something that we need to be embarrassed about. The Trinity is wonderful. The Trinity makes everything about God and the works of God beautiful. Before God is a creator, sustainer, sovereign Lord, redeemer, he is a father loving his son by his spirit. And that is beautiful. The apostle John had already peeled back the curtain In his gospel, in John 17, he recorded Jesus' prayer on the night he was betrayed. And in verse 24, Jesus prayed for something to happen after his ascension to heaven. He said, Father, (coughs) Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus tipped us off to the reason we were created, which really is just amazing information because God didn't have to create us. He didn't need us, right? If he had never created us, he wouldn't have been any worse off. And even now that we're here, we can't improve upon God's perfection. He, his, he can't be improved upon. 
He never needs anything. Without anything outside of him, he's all sufficient. The I am who I am, eternally, perfectly satisfied in that joy fest of love that is the Father, Son, and Spirit in that one united divine being. He didn't have to, but he freely created us out of the overflow of that triune joy. And in 1726, Jesus revealed the goal. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The Father created us out of the overflow of his joyous love for his Son by the Spirit so we would get caught up into an experience of that triune love. Do you see it? He says, the, in order that the love with which you loved me, the Father's love for the Son, may be in us. God created you so that you can feel the Father's love for the Son. God created you so that you can feel the same way about the Son that the Father feels about the Son by the Spirit. So that you would feel the same way about the Father that the Son feels about the Father by the Spirit. What love is this? So undeserved, so freely given. It is such a generous love, and we didn't love him back. We rejected his love. Like a wife saying to a loving husband, thanks but no thanks. You're not enough for me. I'm not satisfied by you. I'm going to go get what I want somewhere else, anywhere else but with you. What hatred, what deep offense. If we dwelled on it, we feel the pain for a human husband. We're talking about the infinite God, perfectly glorious, inconceivably beautiful, altogether lovely, but we didn't love him. That's where John went in 1 John 4.10. By this is love, not that we ourselves love God. We didn't love God. And our adultery is our spiritual death. That's not the way the heart is supposed to function. That's not human life. That's death. Our sins separated us from God. And this is part of what the heretics were denying in chapter 1. Saying they hadn't sinned. But that's stupid. Let's just be honest, right? Like we know there is a magnificent creator who created us in love, but we tried to trade up. We exchanged the glory of God because we preferred lesser things. We weren't satisfied in him and we went looking elsewhere. And so we're dead. That's what John says. It's the foundation of his words in our passage. In verse 10, he comments on our sins. In verse 7, he acknowledges our need to be born again which means we're not alive spiritually. And in verses nine and 10, he assumes the judgment upon us that requires a remedy. But why is there judgment if God is love? This is where so many go wrong, assuming that God's love means that God would never judge, never punish. I mean, maybe the Hitlers of the world, but surely not decent people. I mean, we all mess up sometimes, but But of course, forgiveness is automatic because God is love. They suppose that God's love is is soft and sentimental, like he's a a doting grandfather who sees his children, his grandchildren doing wrong, but he just loves them too much to tell the parents. He just loves them too much to be a party to punishment. 
But we fashion a fictional God. If we make God as love, cancel out the other things that God has revealed about himself in scripture. Classically, theologians have affirmed God's simplicity. They don't mean that he's easy to understand. He is so beyond us. You've got to reach back to your grammar days and the difference between a simple sentence and a compound sentence. Right? A, a, a compound sentence has more than one clause. And the simplicity of God means that he's not compounded. He's not made up of parts. He's not one part love, one part power, one part wise, one part just. I don't have time to detail all of them right now, but there are several reasons that, which I take to be undeniable that, that we must affirm that God is one simple, undivided essence. The I am. He is all that he is. He's not made of parts. He is who he is in and of himself, without division, without limitation. It's not one part this that's kind of limited and sectioned off from this other thing. And so love describes the entirety of his being. And just the same, powerful describes the entirety of his being. He is entirely wise, entirely holy, entirely just. So we can't do what so many people do. And we can't say God may have power and wisdom, but God is love. We can't privilege one attribute against the others. We can't say that God can't have wrath. Because he's love. We can't believe that he doesn't execute judgment. He doesn't punish because he's love. Kevin DeYoung is right to say that the simplicity of God means the declaration God is love, 1 John 4, 8, does not carry more metaphysical weight than God is light, 1 John 1, 5. God is spirit, John 4, 24. God is a consuming fire. Hebrews twelve twenty nine, or for that matter, any scriptural attribute. God is all of his attributes. He doesn't just have justness. He is just. He doesn't have wisdom as an add-on to some sort of more basic godness. His entire essence is wisdom. God is all of his attributes in perfect harmony with all of the attributes. He is powerful with a kind power. He is merciful with just mercy. And God's love is holy love. Therefore, the God who is love cannot love everything. Habakkuk 1.13 says his eyes are too pure to look on evil with approval. God hates everything that is contrary to his holiness. And we, by nature, are contrary to his holiness. The right response to sin in the heart of God is anger. The Old Testament uses about 20 different words to convey the concept of God's anger, his wrath, almost 600 times across every major portion of Scripture. And the revelation of God's wrath is intensified in the New Testament by Jesus himself. And I know that we may all have this knee-jerk reaction to the concept of God's wrath because we've heard or we've experienced the unrighteous anger of sinful men. And I'm so sorry about that. I'm so sorry for the ways I've contributed to that in this world. But God is not a sinful man. 
He is holy. His anger doesn't flare up unjustly. It's not an immature outburst. It's not out of control. And we should be able to grasp this. If you hear about what Boko Haram is doing to innocent men, women, and children in Africa, if you know what a child molester is doing, if you know of any injustice and you don't feel grieved and, and angry, then something's wrong with you. It's right for us to feel grieved and angry at sin. And that's a reflection of God's image in us. That right response gets distorted by our selfishness and our sinfulness. But God's wrath doesn't get distorted. His wrath is in perfect harmony with all of his attributes. It's righteous wrath. It's measured and justly applied. This isn't to say that it's tame, but it's good. His wrath, in fact, is an aspect of his glory. In Exodus 32, Moses saw God's judgment on 3,000 idol worshipers struck dead. But he saw God's mercy on most of the people of Israel. In Exodus 33, Moses prayed, please show me your ways. How does this work? With some getting wrath and judgment and some getting mercy and getting spared. Please show me your glory. And God defined his glory as his goodness known in his name, which carries his reputation for loving and judging, for sovereignly showing mercy and wrath. In chapter 34, he comes down, passes by Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Just pause to contemplate that. He does get angry at the right time, in the right way. But he's so holy, so otherly, so unlike us, that his glory is he's slow to anger. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, bearing iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He visits iniquity. He comes in judgment. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. God's glory, the beauty of his essence made known to us is his goodness known in his name which carries his reputation for loving and judging for sovereignly showing mercy and wrath. His love doesn't eliminate his wrath because he is good. How do we get here? Someone's wondering, why are we talking about God's wrath when the passage is God is love? Because there are voices promoting unscriptural conclusions from God is love in ways that distort the glory of God, distort the gospel, and distort 1 John 4.10 which says the way that we know God's love is by what he did with his wrath. So if we minimize God's judgment, we minimize his love, and I don't want you to minimize his love. I want you to be amazed and overwhelmed and transformed by his love. And that's not gonna happen with wrong speculations about his love, but it can and will happen by the love that is defined by God himself in his word. 
And that's what he does in 1 John 4.10. By this is love. Not that we ourselves have loved God, but that he himself loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is such glorious revelation. It's so sad that it's, it's little understood and often misrepresented. Propitiation is the pacifying of wrath. But people have been trying to redefine this word uh, and this word family for years. Uh, unfortunately, C.H. Dodd gained some traction in some writings that started in 1935. Um, he claimed that God does not feel wrath personally towards sinners. So this word cannot and does not mean propitiation, the pacifying of wrath. Published a bad word study and claimed to prove that the Hebrew and Greek words mean expiation. Not propitiation, but expiation, the removal of sin and guilt. And others support that, claiming that the Hebrew came from a root in a different language that means wiping away, purging. Now, obviously, I don't object to the teaching that Jesus' death removed our sin and guilt. Thank God. The problem is not going further because the truth is that wiped away sin angered God. And now it doesn't. The truth is God personally felt wrath toward us because of our sin. And Christ absorbed that wrath in our place on the cross. So God is now propitious toward believers. He, his wrath has been justly turned to unmerited favor. This is love. His love didn't eliminate his wrath. His love put his wrath into the service of saving us justly. In love, the son volunteered. And in love, the father sent. And in love, they satisfied their righteous wrath against their enemies to relate to us favorably in just mercy, propitiation. As helpful as it can be if we find some connections to roots and other languages, what determines the meaning of these words is how they are used in the context of the Old and New Testaments. And the fact is these words are consistently used in the context of wrath. I don't have time in this setting to show all my work fully, but I would love if anyone wants to geek out about a word study of kafar and halaskamai. Um, I wanted to at least survey Paul's use in the context of God's wrath in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 5, where he uses propitiation in it. Um, but I had to cut it for the sake of time. I died a little bit on the inside, but we'll be okay. I'll send out some notes. We'll be okay today because um, John set us up to understand this word in the same way. In his gospel, his famous John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son in order that everyone believing in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Why would we perish if God is love? Verse 18, everyone disbelieving is condemned. Verse 36, to close out that section, everyone disobeying the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That sinner's head is the abode, the home address of God's wrath, awaiting the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment. 
The earlier gospels had already told us about uh, Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. He's praying for God to remove the cup from him if possible. It's that famous cup of God's wrath from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms. It's a cup of wrath which all nations deserve to drink. If there was another way, Jesus wanted it, but he wanted his father's will more. So he said, your will be done. Then in John 18, 11, when Jesus was being betrayed by Judas and arrested by the soldiers and, and Peter wanted to prevent it and so he draws his sword and he swings at the head of the high priest's servant and cuts off his ear, Jesus blurts out, the cup that my father has given me, should I not certainly drink it? The cup. Jesus was unwavering in his commitment to drink the cup of God's wrath, to absorb the wrath that we deserved by being punished in our place, making the payment that propitiates, that pacifies the wrath of God in our place. So this standard Old Testament sense of propitiation should be clear by the time we get to 1 John. In chapter 2, uh, Casey preached a great sermon on this. If you didn't hear it, jump on the website or the podcast and, and give it a listen. In two one. John says, my dear children, I am writing these things to you in order that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Why would we need an advocate if God is love? John is assuming hear what the Old Testament taught, what he affirmed in his gospel, that God is angry with us because of our rebellion. We need a mediator. So verse two starts with and. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself is the wrath-satisfying substitute for sinners who put their trust in him. Those who slander propitiation often frame it crassly and and say it can't be right that the father is grumpy and vindictive until Jesus steps in and calms him down. Like the father doesn't really want to forgive us, but Jesus talks him into it. That is a horrible view. But good teachers of propitiation have always guarded against that misunderstanding. First, by properly affirming the unity of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit subsist in the same undivided being. They share the same divine mind and will. And so, uh, and they share every attribute that we've just mentioned. So that the Father is the same kind of love as the Son. And the Son possesses the same wrath as the Father. Second, good teachers, clarify that the persons of the Trinity were perfectly united in their eternal plan of redemption. As John says in 4.9, by this the love of God was manifested among us, that God the Father sent his one-of-a-kind Son into the world. The Son didn't come from heaven on his own to try to coerce the Father into being loving. The Father sent the Son in love. Just as the gospel says, John three sixteen, the father so loved the world that he gave his one of a kind son. The father had wrath toward us and love. And in love, he sent the son to absorb his wrath for us. And what a cost. For all eternity, the son had only known the delight of the father. 
But on the cross, he experienced the Father's displeasure toward us because of our sins. And for all eternity, the Father had, had only rejoiced in his Son. But on the cross, he poured out his wrath toward us in him, in our place. By this is love, John says. We most clearly know the love of God by the fact that he bore his wrath in himself, in our place. How you feel about that? And the only right response is to believe it and love God back wholeheartedly. We're on to the, the second and third of my goals. I long for you to understand God's love more accurately, to love more affectionately, and be assured more firmly than ever before. And all three are intertwined in this letter. First John 4.19 says, we ourselves are loving because he himself first loved us. And though the focus of the passage as a whole is loving humans, verses 20 and 21 talk about loving God. That's the foundation. That's the start of true love in us as a right response to God's love. Because remember, John 17, Jesus' prayer revealed that's why we exist. The Father created us and ransomed us to put us into this Trinitarian love and this Trinitarian love in us. So 1 John 4, 7 says that our love is evidence that we've been born of God. Before that, we're spiritually dead. But the Spirit comes in and gives life and enables our confession of faith and unites us to God and his love. Watch this progression in verse 13 to verse 16. Verse 13 says, By this we know that we are abiding in him and he in us because he has given to us of his Spirit. Then in verse verse 14 begins with an and. And we ourselves have beheld. And we are bearing witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Up in verse 12, John said, No one has beheld God the Father. But now he adds that the apostles did behold God's Son, who is the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the Father's word, the Father's self-expression. They beheld him. And he is our savior. So verse 15 speaks of everyone who believes that apostolic witness. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God is abiding in him and he in God. So we started in verse 13 with the spirit. Verse 14, apostolic witness. Verse 15, confessing Jesus. John's unpacking what he had said in the previous section that Casey preached on last week. In 4.2, John said, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ, having come in the flesh, is of God. So the Spirit enables the apostles to confess Jesus truly, and the Spirit enables us to believe their witness and confess it with them. That's why John can say in 4.15 that our confession is evidence that God is abiding in us. Now, what a stinking privilege to be preaching this on a baptism Sunday. To get to say to you baptizees and to all of you, if you are believing in your heart the apostolic testimony of Jesus, your propitiation, and confessing with your mouth, that is evidence that God is abiding 
in you and you in God. Your spirit's abode, your spirit's home address is God. And God's home address is your spirit. This is love. Your faith is evidence that God's spirit has come in, raised you to a life, awakened your faith, emboldened your confession. And now the spirit bears witness that you are God's adopted child. And he's giving you an experience of that fatherly love. Verse 16. And we ourselves have come to know and have believed the love which God has in us. The spirit from verse 13 does that. He connects us to Trinitarian love. Remember, God is a father loving his son by his spirit. We saw it at Jesus' baptism. The, The father can't, can't contain himself. He just rips heaven open, shouts down, this is my son whom I love, in whom I am so pleased. And he's loving his son by his spirit coming upon him like a dove. He's a father loving his son by his spirit. And in the same way, Paul says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is a father loving us in his son, our propitiation, by his spirit. John says in verse 16, we've come to know it. God is love and the one abiding in love is abiding in God and God is abiding in him. And the spirit who lives in us is the spirit who is love. So he bears the fruit of love in our lives. The spirit takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart that works, a heart that responds rightly to God's love with a burning affection for God, a valuing of God that that replaces worldly desires with superior pleasure in God, right? Treasuring God, delighting in God, praising God, seeking his pleasure and his honor with all that we are. And when the spirit is in us stirring up love for God, he also stirs up love for everyone else whom God also loves. Verse 11, beloved, since God loved us in this manner, we ourselves also are obligated to be loving each other. That's how John frames this whole section. Verse seven starts off, beloved, let us be loving each other. And he finishes it in verse 21. And we have this command from him, that the one loving God should also be loving his brother. And this is a unique love. It's not the world's idea of love, especially not our generation's view of love. Because look at verse seven. Love is from God. And everyone loving has been born of God. So if someone hasn't been born of God, then they're not doing this kind of loving because this kind of loving is evidence that one has been born of God. But the unbeliever hasn't been born of God. And this jolted me early in my study because I remember Jesus saying in, in Matthew five forty six, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Don't the tax collectors love like that? So sinners love in some sense, even though they're not born of God. But John wants to give us assurance 
that we've been born of God by pointing to this unique love. So he immediately defines it in 4.9 and 4.10 as God-like love, holy love, self-sacrificial love, even for enemies, which is what Jesus was calling us to in Matthew 5, to love even enemies. Uh, We need to get the uniqueness of this love straight because in the same way that our culture misunderstands God's love for us, they misunderstand our love for others. Our culture thinks that love means affirming whatever makes a person happy, whatever that person thinks will make him happy. And if anyone disapproves or discourages that person's feelings, that's not love. That, that's hatred. Except when it's not. Our culture kind of, kind of knows better and should see how inconsistent they're being because for example, if a, if a girl is already thin and anorexic, we know it's not loving to say, I affirm your feelings. Of course your feelings are right. Of course you should do what you want to get even thinner. Of course you, you should even have surgery to align your body with your desires because your desires must be right. I support a liposuction. Let's remove that fat that isn't really there, but you think is there. We wouldn't do that. That's insane. That's not loving. Or if a person is cutting, we know we can't affirm his desires to harm himself. To love him, we have to say, you're wrong to do that. Please stop doing that. But there are many sins that our culture used to understand as sins, but now they're fashionable. And the world doesn't think they do any harm. But God says those sins hurt people. Those who persist in them without repentance will not inherit God's kingdom. They'll inherit God's judgment. So I am pleading with you, children of God, don't love like the world loves. Love like your heavenly Father loves with holy love. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We cannot celebrate sin. It's not loving if it's not truth. And please do not dare to be so arrogant that you know what is good for people better than what God has revealed in his written word. 1 John 5, 2 Uh, Barring some thunder from next week's sermon, 5-2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. If it transgresses God's commands, then it's not love because it's not actually good for them. 4-6 said the ones who know God listen to his apostolic ambassadors of the new covenant. So this really comes down to whether or not we're going to let God's authority define reality for us, to define what is good for us and for others. And he's done it in his written word. And he's proved that he really wants what is best for us when he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So let us love with holy love according to God's truth, seeking what is truly best for others. And what is best for them is God. We're only loving them 
if we're helping them abide in God. When we do love, we experience God's abiding life in us more fully, and we gain assurance of our final salvation. In verse 12, no one has ever beheld God. If we are loving each other, God is abiding in us. Anyone else want to see God? I wish that was for now, but it's for later. And yet we're not left without an experience of God. When we love, we experience God's life in our own soul. And, John's sentence continues, and his love is completed in us. ESV translated this as uh, perfected, but many scholars don't think that's the best word for us in English. Uh, We think of perfect as flawless, and something that has been perfected is something that was imperfect before, but all the perfections have been worked out, and now it's been perfected. But obviously, God's love is always perfect, um, always flawless. Uh, This Greek word, teleao, has, has to do with accomplishing a goal. The idea is that that God's love accomplishes its end goal in us when we extend it to others. God didn't purpose to pour his love into us and have it end there like a stagnant pool. He purposed to pour his love into us like rivers of living water that flow out to refresh dry hearts and thirsty souls. When we love each other, God's love is completed in us. His love comes to fruition And when we love each other supernaturally, we know that God is abiding in us. We're assured that our faith is real. Our relationship to God is real because we're experiencing his love for us and his love flowing through us to others. Verse 17 says, by this, love has been completed with us with the result that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. He talked about this confidence in 2, 24 through 28. Confidence before Christ at his coming. No need to be ashamed because we're abiding in the apostolic teaching taught by the Spirit. Just like we saw in 415. Here in verse 17, he gives us the reason for our confidence on judgment day. Because just as that one is, so also are we in this world. That one, God, is loving And God's children love like him. So we're confident that our faith is real. We're really saved by Christ. And therefore, we don't have to fear death or judgment day. Verse 18, fear is not in love because complete love casts out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one fearing has not been completed in love. Maybe y'all are already there, Um, but all this love each other talk uh, convicts me. I was thinking just this week uh, about this one guy that I I just don't like. Um, Nobody in here, obviously I I like all of you perfectly well, and you're so likable. Um, I just honestly, I I realized this last week, I've just been loving like a tax collector, I guess. I'm not loving him like God loves. God loves people who wronged him so grievously, so wickedly, and he absorbed it in love. Are you withholding love from anyone who annoys you, 
inconveniences you? Are you withholding love from anyone who's wronged you? I don't mean permissive love like, that okays their sin. I mean holy love. I have been. I have been withholding. But God's moving me to repentance through his word to pray for this guy and to look for opportunities to seek God's best for him. And then even with the people I do like, I see 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not self-seeking. And I'm all, ah. I don't know how to put words to that. That's just, that's my response to 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Like, love is not self-seeking. I'm just cut to the heart for my selfishness that short circuits my love for those around me. And then I read Philippians 2. All this came in the same week. I'm like, come on. Philippians 2, in humility. I'm like, I'm out. Um, I didn't even read the rest. No, I read the rest. Um, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to their own, his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what love looks like when we love with God's love. It's not complete in me yet, but it's there, some. God, John says it's in everyone born of God. I share my conviction of my per- imperfect love, because maybe you need to be convicted too. And I want our repentance to lead to real love and greater confidence because when we love God and others truly we don't fear God's judgment our assurance grows as our love grows but Donald Whitney uh, says so helpfully that that we're mistaken if we think that we can't have assurance of salvation until we see perfection in fruit instead of the presence of fruit It's the presence of fruit, not its perfection, that demonstrates that we're born of the Spirit. You and I don't love perfectly, but we can believe with full confidence that Christ paid the penalty for all of our sins, including every sin of unbelief and every act of love undone. We don't trust our works, we trust God's works. We don't trust our imperfect response. We trust Christ's perfect love, the Father's perfect love by the Spirit. Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's wrath until there was none left. God executed just punishment for our sins in Christ on the cross, which drives out fear that he would punish it a second time in us on judgment day. That would be unjust, but God is just with a loving justice. So Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now not one condemnation for the ones in Christ Jesus. Not one condemnation. Nothing to fear because of God's perfect love in Christ, our propitiation. So let's pray and celebrate that in communion. Father in heaven, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for loving us first, loving us before the foundation of the world, even though you knew just how rebellious we would be, just how ungrateful we would be. 
Help us today to believe that you are love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect love. Perfect love that has overflowed toward us in such a great salvation. Spirit, well up in us. Stir our hearts. Help us to know the Father's love for us in the Son. Help us to love in return. Forgive us our apathy. Forgive us our distracted devotion to you. Burn in our hearts. Love for God and make it become like rivers of living water that flows out to love others. Overcome our self-centeredness and open our eyes to see the ones you want us to love, to see opportunities, to love like you have loved. Convince us today of your perfect love in Christ. Any doubting souls, any fearful souls, let them look off of self and on to Christ, their propitiation, and help them to have confidence that your promise is true, your justice is true, you punished their sins in Christ and you won't do it again. Oh, we love you and praise you in Christ. Amen.